afternoon. Our topic is natural transfers and mini IVF. Uh, thanks for joining us today. We have a lot of great information to share with you. My name is Dr. Carmon. I've got Dr. Frederelli and Dr. Goulet here as well. Um, and so I guess we should just start out by talking about some of the uh, definitions of, of these things we just mentioned. So what is a, a natural transfer? What does that process involve? Well, a natural cycle transfer involves getting the uterus ready using some endogenous hormones, the hormones that the body's producing by way of a follicle, um, just as if you were going to ovulate, and actually getting that follicle to ovulate, uh, and then putting the embryo in after ovulation. The issue, though, is that the you know the definition of a natural cycle, natural natural transfer cycle, really varies because you can supplement with exogenous estrogen or estrogen that we would give a patient either by patch or oral, vaginal or by injection. Uh, you can also supplement with progesterone. Um, we also typically, most places will try to time the transfer by doing a, a trigger shot so that ovulation is induced and we can time when we actually need to put the embryo in because that's very important, putting the embryo at the right time. So it's very rare to do a complete natural cycle where nothing is done except ovulating on their own uh, because the timing of the embryo, putting the embryo in is off at that point. And then there's really the question of um, like why why we would do a natural cycle versus a medicated one, um, and there's really pluses and minuses to to both of these. Um, and so, for a long time, I think, um, and probably continues to be, but the kind of hormone replacement protocols that we utilize, what we're doing is we're suppressing the ovarian function and then we're kind of taking over the cycle, building the lining to where we want it to be and transferring the embryo at the right time. So this kind of cycle has a lot of advantages because we have very good control over the lining development um, and we don't really have to worry about the patient ovulating and sort of how that's going to affect the lining. Um, we've taken the ovaries out of that equation completely. Um, and in so doing, it, it gives us a lot of control. It gives us the ability to um, plan for our patients so that they can also, um, according to their schedules, kind of do transfers, you know, what, when it makes the most sense for them. Um, but Natural cycles um, have gotten more popular um, recently, especially because it seems like um, there may be a lower risk for certain types of pregnancy conditions with natural cycles. So things like preeclampsia may have lower rates. That being said, you know, the, the literature suggests that natural cycle versus program hormone replacement cycles have very similar success rates with implantation and live birth. So it's a very important thing to keep in mind, but there may be some advantage, especially to patients who are already at risk for things like preeclampsia. Um, I think that we, that we as a, country as a world probably are trying to do things more naturally these days. And so natural cycles have really kind of taken off for that reason as well. Um, one of the, the cons for a natural cycle is that you have to be monitored more, more commonly. 
So it's, it's more work for the patient coming in. And also there's a higher cancellation risk uh, because the you may not have a follow-up of it that is growing to ovulate, or you might have a follow-up that tries to ovulate too soon before we're able to catch it and, and, and do the trigger ourselves. And so there is a higher cancellation rate. But as Dr. Carmon said, for when a patient receives a transfer, the transfer, the, the success rates are the same with either a program cycle or a natural cycle. And if I may add, there's um, an additional risk for cancellation. The natural cycle transfer may not be the best type of preparation for everybody, especially if your lining is not growing to an adequate thickness. And so if it stays in a manner that is it's not advantageous, it's not very thick, it's not trilaminar. A program cycle, if you can achieve that on a program cycle, a program cycle might be a better type of transfer for you. Or if you have, I mean, the big one, irregular cycles. <laughs> I mean, you do not, if you have PCOS, which a lot of women have, you know, then you don't have regular cycles uh, or you don't ovulate, then we can't really do an, uh, you know, a natural cycle. So this, so, this is, you really have to take a little bit of a personalized approach um, when it comes to whether or not, you know, natural cycle, there isn't, there isn't really one right answer there. Right. There, I mean, that you can do either one, program or natural, and they work for most patients as long as they're going to ovulate. Uh, but certainly with, you know, you've been discussing it with your provider, um, you can get, you can talk about what works best for you. Um, what about um, the NAP Pro study? Should we kind of get into that right now? Is that sure. uh, something you sure. wanted to bring up? Yeah, sure. So a little bit? the NAP Pro study is a, is a natural program. That's it's a natural program um, comparison of, of cycles, and it's a national randomized controlled trial. Look at there's 20 centers across the country that are involved in this study. We're one of them. Uh, and so patients are randomized to either a natural cycle or a program cycle for transfer. And then in the court, during the course of up to three transfers, they stay in that, in that group. And what we're trying to determine is exactly what Dr. Carmel mentioned earlier. Is there less risk for high blood pressure, hypertension, um, preeclampsia, implantation issues in the patients who undergo a natural cycle as opposed to a program cycle. The, there, there, are a little, there are some data that would suggest that that's the case, but the data, um, are, a lot of them are retrospective. Uh, it's not large enough to really to get to, to find that there is real significant uh, value. And so that's what this study is, is looking at right now. And so we are actually just beginning our, our part of the study and, and we're starting to offer it to patients. Unfortunately, not every patient can be in the study. Just you, know, you have to, as Dr. Carmel just said, um, you have to ovulate. You, you have to you have to have regular menstrual cycles and have a follicle that that would ovulate in order to be a, you know be included in a natural cycle. You can't have PCOS or irregular cycles. Um, so there are some exclusion and, and um, inclusion criteria that we have to follow. Um, and one of the things that you know I really didn't think about much of this is a sort of newer um, uh, kind of thought process now is um, how exciting the corpus luteum is. So people might be wondering why a natural cycle may prevent certain things what's like preeclampsia. Well, I'm getting to that. I'm getting to that. So people might be wondering why a natural cycle may be 
maybe better. I mean, if the lining achieves the appropriate thickness, you know, who cares if we gave the estrogen or we didn't, or, you know, if, if it's, if it's at that thick, that, that's sort of the way that, um, at least I've always, we've all kind of trained that it's really that thickness and appearance of the lining that matters and not really necessarily the pathway that, that we got there with. Um, but that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case. And, um, the corpus luteum is, um, the follicle within the ovary that's kind of ovulated. So when, um, it, throughout a, a natural cycle, when women are starting the process of ovulation on their own, um, the egg lives in a little house, um, of, of cells that support it. Um, and as that follicle matures, that's where you can see on ultrasound that little kind of black circle, that little house gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it sort of bursts and releases the egg. Um, after the egg is released, that house kind of luteinizes, it, it converts into something called the corpus luteum, which on ultrasound has the appearance of um, more of a hemorrhagic type of cyst. You can see kind of some kind of a, a blood collection there. Um, and that's, that's hormonally active. That's where we get the majority of our progesterone from. Um, and so that corpus luteum then produces progesterone um, for, you know, another two weeks or so after ovulation. Uh, if that corpus luteum is, if you become pregnant, then that corpus luteum is rescued by HCG, by pregnancy hormone, and the corpus luteum continues to produce progesterone um, throughout pregnancy, really throughout for the first trimester at least. Um, and so then, okay, well, we're giving the patient progesterone, so who cares, right? But that corpus luteum is not just producing progesterone. That, you know, magical corpus luteum is producing all types of other growth hormones and factors and things like that that may be playing a role here. It doesn't seem to play a big role in the success necessarily of IVF, although there may be differences patient to patient. There are certainly people who seem to do better with natural cycles. Um, but it really, those growth factors, um, you know, may be playing a role in um, changing risks for certain pregnancy complications. Um, and so really the big difference between natural cycle and, you know, the, the hormone replacement protocols really is that there's a corpus luteum in natural cycles. We can still give estrogen and we can still give some progesterone and uh, all that, but um, if there's a corpus luteum, that's kind of what we mean when we say that, that there's, uh, that, that the natural cycle has been completed. Um, yeah. Very good. Okay. <clears throat> I've never heard it referred to as a house. Oh, that's, really? That's, that's a house. Yeah. It lives in a house. Yeah. A circle house. Oh, yeah, a circle. Well, a ball. A bubble. Definitely a ball. A ball. It lives in a or bubble. Yeah. Um, Okay, well, that was fun. So maybe we should talk about mini stem IVF, which is one of the things that I love to do. Um, I don't know if anybody else loves I, to do it, but I, I do. I think it's great. So um, mini stem or natural cycle IVF, right, would be IVF using much lower doses of medication. Um, and that's really it. I mean, that that's that's really the definition. So you know, instead of um, utilizing more conventional doses, which for many women might include, you know, a full sort of 300 units of FSH and another 150 units of HMG, right? Those are the Falstim and Gonalef and Menipure medications you guys may have heard about. Instead of all that, we might just, so that'll be a total of 450 units of those injections, right? So instead of doing that, we would give 75 units of injections per day. 
Um, why would we do that? Okay, so um, the literature suggests that in most cases, you know, if you're just comparing mini stim to traditional cycles, um, the traditional cycles have better success rates. So why do I, you know, do mini stim on some of my patients? That's because to some degree, it is a little bit of a numbers game. And so there are many patients um, who I might give, you know, 450 units of medication to per day, and they might get two eggs. Um, and then I do another cycle and I do the same thing. I give them another 450 units per day and they still might, they might get another two eggs, okay? Those same patients don't really need all that medication. If I give them 75 units, they might still get those two eggs, okay? But um, it's gonna be easier for them financially and perhaps in terms of side effects, depending on how they feel to undergo multiple cycles. Um, and so it may be more affordable and feasible for them to do mini stims and just do 75 units, you know, mini stims three months in a row, uh, where, and now they're going to have two eggs, two eggs, two, now they're going to have six eggs, right? Versus if they had kind of, um, you know, put all of their sort of emotional and financial resources into one pool and did, did a traditional cycle, um, they might, and just once they're gonna end up with those two eggs. So I think that um, the pricing is a big, big benefit for mini stim IVF. Um, there are, you know, the um, whether or not uh, gonadotropin seem to harm um, gametes, you know, seem to harm egg development or anything like that. I'm, I'm not sure that that's really been uh, shown to be the case. I think really, really the benefit of the mini stims is more so um, how to kind of pool your resources and get the, the most sort of benefit to um, with, with, with your money and with your time. Um, and so that's totally different than kind of the natural cycle transfer but I think people are always wondering about differences between the mini stim and I think conventional. People call sometimes we'll call it just a natural cycle IVF, right? So mm -hmm. the, the difference is that with natural cycle IVF, it's completely a natural cycle without medications, and then mini stim is giving a little bit of medication with the IVF cycle. Um, Dr. Glay, are there other reasons why you specifically would do mini stim cycles? I I traditionally like to do it after my patient has proven on a max stem cycle that they're only going to grow a limited number of eggs. And then at that point with the numbers game, as Dr. Carmel was referring to, it becomes more financially feasible if we're going after only a handful of eggs and they're growing that handful with a much lower dose, then that makes a lot more sense if we can do several cycles of that at a cheaper cost. Um, uh, but if your ovaries are capable of producing a more robust number on a higher dosing, I would recommend still going for the traditional IVF with the higher dosing rather than compromising the number of eggs you can get out. If you're capable of growing a dozen eggs, you shouldn't settle for a mini dose where we're only expecting a few eggs at a time. Right. Yeah. So, you know, the benefit of IVF is getting as many eggs as possible. If you're only going to get one egg, Literally doesn't matter how you get that egg, um, you got the same chance with that one egg. But if you can get twelve eggs from a, from a normal stimulation IVF cycle, then that's what you that's what you want. I guess the 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 con to what you're saying is 
There are patients though who will, with a max dose uh, cycle, get two eggs, and then when you do a mini stem, their ovaries don't respond to it. And so, so that's that's sometimes is uh, the downside of that, and then you have to explain that to the patient. Uh, but but certainly there are patients who, with a max dose stimulation, their ovaries still don't respond either. Uh, and so you have to you know, be aware. Uh, what about younger patients? Yeah, so um, I'm pretty careful. I mean, younger patients are on kind of a mini stim already, but, right. but certainly you can go lower. You can go lower with younger patients, but you know, the, the thing is, you're going to get fewer eggs. And with older patients, you know, that's okay because that's all you can get. <laughs> but with a younger patient, that's tricky because, um, you know, why get uh, five eggs from someone if I can get 20? I mean, even in, in young people, um, the human reproduction, I, I feel like I say this at every visit, but human reproduction is just not very good. So, you know, every egg has seven to 10% chance for, you know, yielding a baby. Um, and so even in somebody who really doesn't have good fertility potential, uh, or, or any, I'm sorry, any infertility issues, um, they're not going to be able to have a baby with every single egg that, that, you know, that we're getting. Um, and so, I would hesitate to really recommend uh, a mini stim for a young patient. I mean, I think we can dose them appropriately, you know, not necessarily, they don't have to have the max dosing of medication, but, you know, they also don't have to get, you know, just 75 units a day or something. Right, try to optimize um, the number you can get. Right, safely, you right. know. So, um, yeah, I, I really do see it as more of a way to be able to have patients um, kind of do back-to-back -back cycles, um, you know, and make it just more financially feasible and, um, you know, cut, cut side effects and things like that for them. And you can also, you know, with the mini stem cycles, you know, use oral medicines to, to um, augment the injectable medicines that you're giving to help lower the cost as well. Um, we also will use that for our, our max stem uh, protocols as well but um it doesn't have the same the quite the same effect as, as you do as you get with the, the mini stem patients and certainly with mini stem you certainly you can just use oral meds too depending on what their sure. how many follicles they have right so. yeah and i i suppose that the cause of infertility makes a difference too i mean you know if you're sure that um this is a tubal factor you know because this is somebody who had a tubal ligation and they never had any fertility issues and they're young, um, then using lower doses of medication in a patient like that is perhaps more appropriate than somebody who has unexplained infertility. You know, even if their ovarian reserve numbers look good and all that, there's um, a fair proportion of patients with unexplained infertility probably have a subtle egg quality issue that we're just not really picking up on. And so they, they may need as many eggs as we can get to um, be able to overcome that that problem. Um, so I think um, you guys will hopefully be hearing a lot more of the, the NAPRO study from us and um, our marketing efforts um, to try to um, kind of get, get the word out about the NAPRO study. Um, so definitely kind of ask us questions about that, see if you're a good candidate um, and help, help us answer this question of whether or not the corpus luteum really matters, uh, whether or not it's as magical as um, 
I hope it is. <laughs> I've been telling patients it's super magical. So I'm hoping that, uh, that, that the study um, kind of really answers that question. I think that the reality is with, with pretty much with all studies, that um, you typically will, you, you may find a little, some difference, but typically it's not a huge difference for the individual patient. You know, right. and, and it's not to you're looking at 100 or 1,000 patients that you get you know, a benefit of, of one to two. So the question is, are you going to be that one to two? And, and certainly, we, as a when we look at population, we would like to have we would like to decrease any kind of risk by you know five to ten percent if if there is a, a way to do that. And so that's what we're always looking for, while still maintaining the the success rates. And, and that's the nice thing is that the success rates are the same regardless of how you do it. It's just the um, just want to find out if it's better for the the patient during their obstetrical uh, journey. Right. Okay, well, it was really nice yeah. to um, have you in our office today here yeah, instead of me in being, here. yeah. Trapped, trapped me. <laughs> um, yeah, so thanks everyone for joining us today. This is Ask the Docs, a Fertility Institute of Hawaii live stream. And for more information, uh, definitely check out our website, ibfcenterhawaii.com. Um, if you have any additional questions, feel free to leave comments here and then we can answer them later. Um, or of course, uh, give us a call and schedule your consultation now. Okay, thank you, aloha. Bye. <laughs>